are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Welcome to the Audio Information Network of Colorado's High Country News Program. I'm KG Greenspun, reading from the February edition. Under the heading, Reportage, Grace for the Great Salt Lake, Environmental Sentiments in Latter-day Saints Scripture May Be Ripe for Revival, by Carolyn Tracy. In the spring of 1848, shortly after the first Latter-day Saints settled in the Salt Lake Valley in what later became known as the Territory of Utah, a plague of crickets swarmed their crops. As the tale goes, they prayed, and God sent seagulls from the nearby Great Salt Lake, whose existence reminded the settlers of Israel and the Dead Sea. By thousands and tens of thousands, the seagulls began to devour them up until the land was cleared of crickets and our crops were saved, a church elder recalled in an 1880 sermon. By saving the crops, the gulls saved the thousands of settlers. Today, the Salt Lake Valley remains the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but now... It's the Great Salt Lake that needs saving. The West's mega-drought has shrunk the lake to record low levels, and toxic metals in the exposed lake bed are creating dangerous dust storms. Much of the water diverted away from the lake is used for alfalfa, Utah's top cash crop, and many alfalfa farmers are Mormons. The LDS Church itself owns over 5,000 acres of farmland in Salt Lake County alone. But even though the LDS scriptures are rich in environmentally-minded teachings, many members who consider themselves environmentalists believe their institution is missing an opportunity to live up to its ideals. Because early LDS culture revolved around farming, Founder Joseph Smith emphasized the importance of careful stewardship. One scripture, which famously bans the consumption of coffee and alcohol, states that meat is to be used sparingly and only in times of winter or cold or famine. Adherence to that directive could help preserve the Great Salt Lake. The drying of the Great Salt Lake is being driven primarily by growing alfalfa, which isn't for human consumption directly, but feed for animals, said Ben Abbott, an ecosystem scientist at Brigham Young University and a board member of the faith-based advocacy organizations LDS Earth Stewardship and Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance, MESA. If we were to follow that clear guidance in Scripture to have a plant-based diet, we wouldn't be in this situation. But Mormons who want their church to address current environmental crises must navigate a complex political history. During the 1980s, when resentment of federal regulations sparked protests dubbed the Sagebrush Rebellion, many churchgoers sympathized in the mid-1800s, the federal government had persecuted Latter-day Saints for practicing polygamy by seizing church property and incarcerating officials. The church renounced polygamy in 19, 1890, 
This fraught history made conflict over federal environmental regulation particularly heated in Mormon country. In July 1999, for instance, a bishop in Escalante, Utah, called for a religious war against environmentalists. Today, the church's membership remains overwhelmingly conservative. Current and former church members say that the environmental teachings of Mormon scripture are overlooked in favor of teachings that treat life on earth as merely a preparation for heaven. All the years I was in the church, environmentalism was scoffed at. It was considered a fool's game, said John Larson, former host of the Mormon Expression podcast, who was raised in the church. Being an apocalyptic church, they believe that Jesus will come soon and renew the earth, so trying to fix the environment is unnecessary. Under this interpretation, Larson said, the desiccation of the Great Salt Lake could be seen as simply another sign of the decadence of non-believers' earthly existence. Still, Mormon environmentalists, who see reverence for the earth as essential to spirituality, say they are seeing increasing willingness to embrace environmentalism. Organizations such as LDS Earth Stewardship, founded in 2012, and MESA, which branched off to focus on political advocacy, are part of this change. Our doctrine is very supportive of conservation, but we felt like the membership and the culture of the Church have not been, said Mark Coles Ritchie, an ecologist and MESA board chair. But now, he said, there's a shift and a greater awareness and willingness to try to address environmental problems. In addition to the Great Salt Lake, Mesa has been involved in activism regarding air pollution, climate change, and the conservation of Utah Lake. There are signs that the Church, as an institution, is shifting. In June 2012, it released a statement encouraging water conservation, and last year, two church leaders gave formal addresses at LDS events about the importance of water conservation and environmental stewardship. When approached for comment by High Country News, a representative of the church's communications team replied that they are not offering interviews on the water conservation statement or about the Great Salt Lake. Still, advocates hope the church will use its clout to make an environmental impact, especially in calling for conservation of agricultural water the church could be incredibly important in calling for conservation in a way that the state government never could, said Abbott. And now, tribal co-stewardship takes shape. The Biden administration is shifting how the U.S. manages public lands, by Anna V. Smith. Since the start of his administration, President Joe Biden has taken significant actions that have resonated in Indian country, restoring Bears Ears National Monument, nominating the first indigenous cabinet member, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, Laguna Pueblo, investing billions in tribal water rights settlements and infrastructure, 
In 2021, his administration took a historic step when it committed to a policy of restoring tribal oversight of ancestral lands and of working with tribes in co-stewardship to manage public lands. Since then, a flurry of agency memos and reports have filled out more details of what these co-stewardship arrangements might look like. But what do all these statements amount to in practical terms? Tribes across the country are seeking the return of lands that were illegally or forcibly taken by the United States. For some, co-management with federal agencies is a way to regain a measure of control of their ancestral lands and can be a first step toward the restitution and sovereignty sought by the land back movement. Given the declining budgets of federal agencies and tribes' deep, place-based knowledge and growing governing capacity, co-stewardship can be a natural fit. There really is an ongoing nationwide conversation right now about co-management. Kevin Washburn, Chickasaw Nation, who was Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs under Obama and worked on the Biden transition team, said in an interview, I'm firmly convinced that tribes can run a lot of these units, parks and refuges, as well as, or better than, the federal government can. Durable policy is a slow-moving ship, but the administration is making headway. In 2022, the U.S. Department of Agriculture signed 11 new co-stewardship agreements with tribal nations, and the department has said another 60 are in development. Meanwhile, the Department of the Interior finalized an agreement to co-manage Idaho's Dwarshak National Fish hatchery with the Nez Perce tribe. In the southwest, after decades of campaigning for protections for Avi Kwa Aim National Monument, the Fort Mojave tribe and other human-speaking tribes have been promised that protections will be established soon. And, given the administration's new policies, advocates are hopeful that some measure of co-stewardship will be included. Fort Mojave Tribal Administrator Ashley Hemmers said in an interview that the Biden administration has been intentional in its engagement and has consulted with her tribe throughout the process. That has been really healthy and hopefully something that can be ongoing, she said. The distinction between co-management and co-stewardship, terms the federal government uses for agreements to collaborate on land management with tribal nations, is subtle but important. Co-stewardship covers a broad range of collaborative activities like forest thinning work in Alaska's Tongass National Forest in partnership with the Huna Indian Association, where indigenous knowledge can be included in federal management, but co-management is more narrowly defined. In those instances, tribal and federal governments share the power of legal authority in decision-making of a place or a species. This is the case with Kasha Katui Tent Rocks National Monument in New Mexico.
which is co-managed by the Pueblo de Cochiti and the Bureau of Land Management, and with the salmon fisheries in the Pacific Northwest. The administration has already begun to grapple with the re with the practical realities of setting up these collaborations with tribes. One challenge is ensuring that the ideals behind co-stewardship and co-management are upheld by the career federal employees who carry out the projects, not just by the political appointees who may change with a new administration. To this end, in 2021, Holland and Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack signed a secretarial order requiring that co-stewardship efforts be addressed in individual employee performance reviews. It's an effort to really change the career-level staff in the agency's approach to doing their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis, said Monty Mills, director of the Native American Law Center at the University of Washington, who wrote a white paper on tribal co-management possibilities. That's really where it's going to make a difference, Mills said in an interview. Though tribes and the federal government are both currently enthusiastic about co-stewardship, there are still hurdles to clear, primarily with staffing and funding. Tribes already take on contracts with agencies like the Indian Health Service or the Bureau of Indian Affairs to provide treaty or trust-mandated public services, such as running hospitals, schools, and fire departments. In those cases, tribal governments receive federal funds to help pave for staff and other costs of fulfilling the contract, but Congress hasn't appropriated additional funds for tribes to manage public lands, which means that tribes and federal agencies, both of which are underfunded by Congress, must find the capacity on their own. In the case of the Fort Mojave tribe, preparing for these obligations has been part of the effort to secure protections for Avi Kwa Aim. It's really been a conversation about making sure that our leadership is ready for what we're asking for, Hemmer said, adding that it's important that the tribe can be a true partner to show that not only do we have the traditional knowledge, but we do have the resources to be able to maintain it, regardless if there's a funding at a federal level or not. While the Biden administration has prioritized co-stewardship, Congress has not passed legislation ensuring that future administrations follow the same policy. This leaves tribal nations vulnerable to the shifting tides of politics. Legislation could create a federal process for considering co-stewardship proposals, giving tribes a more permanent avenue to push for collaborations that emanate from tribal priorities. A good starting point could be the millions of acres across the West that lie within tribal reservation boundaries and are managed by federal agencies. As much as anything else, it's about sort of changing the mindset and agency approach and identify identity to land management, Mills said. And that takes time. If it's going to be a wholesale sea change, that's still yet to come. And time for one more? Sure. The little ski hill that could. 
a Montana community's quest to preserve public access to land on its outskirts by Kylie Moore. Young evergreen trees are reclaiming the formerly groomed ski runs at Marshall Mountain, just outside Missoula, Montana. In the winter, backcountry skiers descend its slopes, donning headlamps to earn turns in the dark before or after work. In the summer, mountain bikers let out shouts of jubilee as they whiz down the maze of trails, and the base area bustles with kids' camp groups. A rust-speckled, peptobismal pink chairlift dangles unmoving behind a clock tower whose hands haven't budged for over two decades, but this ski hill is far from abandoned. All that almost changed during the summer of 2021, when a dramatic property sale nearly went through, one that might have closed the bottom half of the mountain. But two local couples who hoped to preserve access made a last-minute backup offer to buy the property instead. That second deal ultimately went through, and the new owners are now leasing it to the city of Missoula for $10 for up to two years, with an option for the city to buy the property in June 2023. The city is working toward that now. They bought our community time, said Morgan Valiant, Missoula Parks and Recreation's Ecosystem Services Director, who's overseeing the project. That is really rare. Missoula's on-again, almost-off-again access to a powdery paradise and mountain biking mecca, just a 15-minute drive from downtown, illustrates the risky nature of relying on landowners' goodwill for outdoor experiences. Now, Missoulians, including the city, nonprofits, a land trust, and other outdoor recreation and conservation groups, are determined to guarantee public access once and for all. Generations of Montanans grew up skiing at Marshall Mountain. A crude rope tow began pulling people up the hill in 1937, and the ski area officially opened in the winter of 1941. Kerosene flames illuminated the mountain's first night in 1957, and for the next several decades, the slopes remained open. But financial difficulties and a lack of consistent snowfall forced the owners to shutter the resort in 2003. This ski area splintered. The top, which had been leased from a timber company, was purchased by the Nature Conservancy, and then, in 2015, donated to Five Valleys Land Trust. The ski resort's owners retained the base and allowed organized races and informal public access for parking, skiing, and mountain biking. With its relatively safe terrain, Marshall became a beloved training ground for beginning skiers and mountain bikers. It's a coveted space by a lot of people, said Alex Kim, founder of Here Montana, a social enterprise dedicated to increasing access to outdoor activities for people of color. Editor's note, Kim also made the photo for this story. But the community access became uncertain in 2015 when the base owners put the 156-acre plot up for sale, and even more tenuous in 2021. 
Out-of-state buyers were under contract when the two local couples swooped in with a successful backup offer of $2.16 million. The The owners, almost owners, later filed a lawsuit alleging breach of contract. Missoula is now working to acquire the base parcel for $1.85 million, along with a land trust parcel and one additional parcel to create a 480-acre park. A planning process spearheaded by the SC Group consulting firm will conclude with a final master plan in early 2023. Municipalities have bought defunct ski resorts before, according to the consultants. The village of Ascutney, Vermont, and Herfano County in Colorado each bought old ski hills in recent years and partnered with local nonprofits to run them. But Missoula is pursuing a different path. It will manage the mountain, adding the property to its Parks and Recreation Department's lands. A nonprofit, Friends of Marshall Mountain, is raising money for acquisition, improvements, and long-term maintenance. The city also plans to use some of the funding from an open space bond passed in 2018 for the purchase, and it hopes to cover the rest with grants and partnerships. Last summer, Missoula solicited public input for a community visioning process. Over 1,300 people provided comments, double the amount of feedback on any other city project. The breadth of community support, or at least interest, passion, or nostalgia, Valiant said, you don't often get that. The project's success requires a community with money to spare that loves the hill and its associated sports. It also relies heavily on the private sector. If we really want to preserve our way of life and our connectivity with the pace of development and land sales right now, it takes people like that stepping up and with very altruistic means, Valiant said, referring to the 2021 buyers. But it's not a foolproof approach. Elsewhere in the West, some landowners block rather than facilitate access from suing hunters for corner crossing to reach public lands in Wyoming to gating crucial roads in Montana. Today, Marshall Mountain is at a crossroads. What will its future be like under new municipal ownership? This city's draft master plan shows potential changes, including a new trail for hand cycles, a beginner bunny hill with magic carpet conveyor belts, more parking, and covered structures for gathering. Some old structures, like the lodge and lift, will likely be demolished for safety reasons, though backcountry skiing will continue. But in order for Marshall to become a true gathering space for Missoulians, barriers like affordability and transportation need to be addressed. Kim has led hiking and snowshoeing outings at Marshall in the past and said the area plays an important but inaccessible role in Missoula's outdoor recreation scene. A lack of public transportation routes up the canyon limits who can get there, and Kim said the city's standard insurance requirements for events 
can be restrictive for small groups like his. The city is considering new user fees, already the norm elsewhere for reserving a picnic shelter or using a ropes course to balance raising operating funds and keep visitor costs down. We could design a total pay-to-play model where we're generating a bunch of profit to run the site, but we wanted to get away from that, Valiant said. Missoulians are ironing out the details, raising money, and awaiting bond funding approval from the city council and county commissioners. Meanwhile, Marshall's fate as a community recreation destination remains uncertain. This summer, Nathan McLeod, Missoula Parks and Recreation's landscape architect, was mountain biking at the hill when he overheard people chatting about how glad they were that Marshall was saved. Not yet, he thought. We have not saved it, McLeod said. It's important people realize we still have a lot of work to do. And now a little Herd Around the West by Tiffany Midge. In Idaho, the Boise Bicycle Project made 580 kids happy by giving them their very own set of wheels. Our goal is to make sure that everyone, regardless of income, has access to a bicycle and safe places to ride, Boise Bicycle Project founder and executive director Jimmy Halliburton said. KTV B7 reported that 200 volunteers helped to customize donated bikes based on the kids' specifications. To date, the Boise Bicycle Project has given away over 10,000 bikes and shows no sign of hitting the brakes. And that's the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining me. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.